0: Boy, and talking about the word great, there are a lot of great ones in the Bible, aren't there? Gosh, just think about them. We, we, we've got Adam and Eve. We, we've got Noah in the flood. There's, there's Moses in the parting of the Red Sea, or Moses in the burning bush. Maybe, maybe for you it's Elijah on that chariot of fire, or Samson and Delilah, or, or maybe uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Or there's always the fan favorite, maybe the most well-known of all time, David and Goliath. Man, we can move into the New Testament and there's always the Christmas story, Jesus in the manger and all of those events surrounding that. Or or Jesus feeding the 5,000. Or Jesus and Peter walking on water. The Bible brings us a number of really great stories. I mean, there's one aspect you say, well, all the Bible's great. All of the stories are great. But there are some that stand out, aren't there? There are some that we just know so well. As a matter of fact, a lot of us wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I know a lot about the Bible. Or I've got a lot of Bible knowledge. But we would say, oh, I know those stories. Man, I, I know those great stories of the Bible. Some of us have known them for decades. We learned them in a musty Sunday school room on a flannel board. How many of you learned David and Goliath on a flannel board? Oh, man, to the glory of God on the flannel board. Amen. Man, we know those stories. Well, folks, I want to take a, a couple of weeks, a month here. We're going we're to reacquaint ourselves with some of these great stories of the Bible. And as we do, as I say that, I want to clear up the word stories. Stories. The word stories can can apply a couple of things. When I say the word stories as it relates to these in the Bible, I am talking about something that is absolutely historically true and accurate as it's written in Scripture. Okay? So I'm not talking about a myth or a legend or or a teaching kind of, you know, a story told for teaching. No, I'm talking about something that actually happened just as it is written in Scripture. Another thing, when we hear a story, we read stories for entertainment, don't we? there's certainly some entertaining value. Some of these stories you'll finish and you'll go, cool, man, that was awesome. But they were not written for your entertainment. These stories were written, they were revealed, they were communicated in Scripture to change our lives. When we read these stories, we should be asking, why did God take this event that happened X number of thousands of years ago, why did He record it so that I'd be interacting with it in 2010? Why did I hear this story today? What does God want for this story in my life this week? That's the kind of questions we should be asking as we read these great stories of the Bible and study them afresh. We're going to begin today with Noah and the flood. So turn to Genesis chapter 6. Don't you love when the sermon is out of Genesis? Man, that one is just so easy to find. First couple of pages of your Bible there. If you don't have one, we've got some in the in the chairs in front of you, around you, Genesis chapter six. Now, when I say we're going to read the story, I don't have to read it, do I? I, I? I mean, before we look at the first verse, some of you may be brand new to our church. Some of you may not. You may not have come to faith in Christ yet. You may not be a Christian. You're just kind of exploring. You're kind of thinking. You're kind of wondering. It doesn't really matter where we are. When I say we're going to talk about Noah and the flood, you know right away there's a big boat, there's a bunch of animals, and I think there's going to be a flood. I I, I mean, you don't have to to open it up and read that to know that. Now, what we might want to refresh ourselves on is why. Why is there a big boat and a bunch of animals in a flood. What's the context behind this story? And that's what we see starting in chapter 6. Look at verse 5. It says there, when the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread. Now, that's the first word I want you to notice. It's widespread. And we're not talking about a local problem. We're talking about something that touches Every human being, it is widespread, it covers the earth. God saw man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, everywhere, and that every scheme in his mind, now we're getting individual. Every scheme in his mind he thought of was nothing but evil. So the problem of evil is widespread in that it covers the earth, but it's also deep in that as you look at the individual, every motivation, every thought is being driven by this evil. Let's finish up here. Verse 6, the Lord, hard verse, the Lord regretted that he had made men or had made man on the earth and he was grieved. Very important word. He was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off the face of the earth, man whom I created together with these animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky. You know, when you read that, don't you kind of think, what did they do? (laughs) What, What did the animals do? Creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. So what is the context behind the boat, the flood, the animals on the boat? The context is our evil. Man is evil. He is evil across the earth. He is evil down deep in his life. If you look at verses 11 and 12, in just those two verses, three times you're going to see the word corrupt. It talks about how corrupt man had become. So that's the context, that's the why, and if, if you read, a matter of fact, the beginning of chapter 6 kind of gives us the, the key sins of the culture, the key sins of the day that, that God was having this reaction to. It's a difficult passage, kind of one that's difficult to understand, but it's dealing with sexual immorality and idolatry. And man was actually kind of intersecting, man was kind of bringing these two sins, sexual immorality and idolatry. And idolatry I'm defining as any attempt of man to reduce God, to limit God, any attempt of man to define God by his own terms, man was using these sins really as an attack upon God himself. The the intent was to say, you're not God, I'm God. God. I'm the master of my world. I'm the master of my universe. I'll do what I want to do. Those are the key sins of this day. Now, folks, you know, I read that and I think, huh. Now, let's see, what would be the difference between the world I live in and this world right here? Gosh, there's no difference at all, folks. We're grossly immoral grossly sexually immoral, from pornography to homosexuality to to sex anywhere and everywhere, all in and around marriage. Marriage is really not an issue. It's not necessary. I mean, every way we approach sex today is really not from what God intended, but it's from a a very sexually immoral mindset. And, And are we idolatrous? Maybe not in the sense that we have built a little idol in our home and we bow down to it, but we bow down to the idol of our mind. We define God. We define who He is, what He is, what it takes to get to Him. He's the product of us. If not, we just throw that off and say, I'm God. Now, most of us don't begin very many sentences saying, I'm God, but we live like it. You can't tell me what to do. I can do what I want to do. I'll decide what is right and wrong. (laughs) Folks, that's our motto. Only a God can say that. So we're very much like this culture that we're reading about right here, and what we see in this story, and folks, this story is going to be filled with lessons, lessons that really much of the rest of the Bible is going to expand on, elaborate on, and teach on. We get, we get a lot of lessons out of this story, and what we see from this is how this makes God feel, and, how, and what kind of response that it demands. Now, when God looks down into our lives and down into our world and and He sees sexual immorality, He sees a lack of gratitude. I mean, I don't have to thank Him. I produced everything in my life. I I don't have to acknowledge Him. I've done it all. When He sees that, when He sees us making ourselves equal to God, the Scripture says here that it grieves Him. That's a New Testament teaching also. Ephesians 4.30 says that the Holy Spirit of God is grieved Pained, burdened by our sin. You know, we we have a tendency to don't we? Don't we, I think even in church to kind of see God as cold. You know, He doesn't have emotions. He doesn't. He doesn't feel. I, I don't. The Scripture says nothing like that. But that seems to be way man kind of casts a character on Him. Even though the Scripture says quite often He He does feel. He does respond. And it says here that when he looks at our sin, he grieves, it hurts him. You know, I think maybe the, one of the best ways to understand that, and some of you unfortunately will understand this and you don't want to understand it. You know, when I think of this, what this word grieves means here, it's like being a parent of a, of a child, especially maybe an adult child, and you watch that child making, you know, one bad sinful decision after another. And you're watching those decisions and, and you see them, you watch them destroying their lives. Destroying the lives of maybe their, their mate, people around them, your grandchildren. You watch that and it aches, doesn't it? I mean, it hurts. It hurts when you watch someone you love very much making those decisions and they're destroying their lives. You grieve, you, you carry that pain and that burden. That's what's being addressed here. God loves us. Has given us everything and, and desires for us such good, and yet we reject, we rebel, we choose sin, and we destroy our lives in the process. And he grieves, he hurts to watch us do that to ourselves. Now, the scripture not only says that he grieves in the face of this sin, but scripture also says this story teaches us that it demands a response. Folks, when we try to bring God down to our level, or we're, we're trying to lift ourselves up to His level, it is going to be met with divine judgment. And boy, this story gives us a big judgment, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than destroying everything on the planet. I mean, really, is there a bigger judgment? I mean, you look at this and say, the birds too? God, what the birds do? This is a big judgment. But you know, maybe the way that you and I need to look at this Is not, why was there this big judgment on people of the past? Maybe what we need to be thinking is, what is the big lesson for everybody in the future? Because this isn't the end of humanity. God, God rescued one out of this so that you and I would have a second chance. So that humanity could go on. Noah and the flood is there for a lesson. This is a big lesson. And what's the lesson? When people sin, judgment is coming. And that judgment will be destructive. Folks, nothing in that lesson has changed since the day it started raining on Noah's ark. God is still going to judge sin. No sin is being gotten away with. Every sin will be dealt with. That's the lesson. It's going to be judged. Destruction will be a part of that. And you know what? Would you believe God's being kind when He does that? What? Kind? Maybe just, but God's being kind when He brings this huge judgment on the earth? Yeah, He's being kind. Because, folks, it's not kind to ignore wrong. Is it? Are you being kind? If your kids are being wronged, are you being kind to ignore it? Is it loving to pretend like wrong is not there? You know, I, I think when we think of a loving God... As a matter of fact, when we think of dying and standing before him, we count on him being loving, don't we? And usually what we really mean in our hearts by that is I'm counting on him not caring. I'm counting on him not caring about the wrong in my life. I'm counting on him overlooking the wrong in my life. I'm, I'm counting on it just being no big deal to him. But is that love? Does love act like wrong? Is okay. Are you okay with wrong? No, you're not. Nobody is, and nor should we expect a holy, perfect God to be okay with wrong. Now, love is patient, and the scripture shows us the incredible patience of God with our sin. Love is forgiving, and the scripture shows us over and over. I mean, the greatest story is the cross, isn't it? What's the cross about? Your opportunity to be forgiven. So God's love is patient. God's love is forgiving. But folks, God's love is not going to pretend like wrong is not there. And that's not loving. Love deals with the wrong. Love handles the wrong. It's not loving to pretend like it's not there. And yet that's our mindset as we approach God. So in His love, and yes, His justice, and yes, His holiness, God brings judgment against the evil of the world. But even in the midst of that judgment, we see his patience, we see his his forgiveness, we see his grace, because he wants you and I to have a second chance. He wants us to have another opportunity. So he doesn't kill every human being. Look at verse 8. It says, Noah, however, found favor. Now, you and I would probably tend to look at that and say, Noah was the best person on the planet, so he won. Right? That word favor there means unmerited, undeserved. And so you could read this verse accurately translated to say, Noah found an undeserved second chance with God. Noah doesn't get a chance at the ark because he's better than everybody else. He doesn't get a chance because he's sinless or because he's perfect. As a matter of fact, after all these lessons that that, that Noah and the ark and the flood are going to teach us, we get into chapter 9 and Noah sins. The whole story of Noah ends really on his sin that has a devastating impact on a, on a portion of his family. So, so Noah's not getting this because he's perfect. Noah gets this chance because God is gracious and there's another lesson, isn't it? Folks, the only way that you and I can escape God's judgment is by His grace. Again, another New Testament teaching, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace we are saved. It's not by our works. It's not by how religious we want to be or think we are. You know, that actually offends some people. It, it almost seems wrong. We, we think of maybe a person that's really, really good, and there seems something wrong about saying they won't go to heaven if they've not trusted in Christ. Because they're, they're a really, really good person. You know, we should be able to stand there on our merits of how good we are. But folks, when we're doing that, we're completely ignoring the evil and the wrong that's in our life. We're, we're getting on this scale. And, and, and so what we want to do is we want to we pretend like the, the good outweighs the bad. And so I come over here, and, and Brian, I'll use you because I used your dad in the last hour. And, and so I come up to, to Brian and Rhonda and say, you know, I just feel generous today. I feel kind, I want to do something good for somebody. So I walk over to the two of them and say, here's a hundred bucks. Go out and enjoy a nice lunch. You know, if you need to use it for, go out. That's a, I've done a good thing, right? That's a, that's a real blessing. But I come over here and, and Mary Beth, who's sitting over by herself, I don't like Mary Beth at all. And, and so I walk over to Mary, I don't give her hundred bucks. I kick her in the shin as hard as I can. And when she falls to the ground, I give her another one right in the face. And when she's laying there, I spit on her. Puh. Now, I've got a real good work to my credit today. Okay, not so good work, but I'm back to neutral, right? One good one, one bad one. Well, you know what? I want to be more than neutral. So I'll I'll, I'll come over here and and Kirk, I'll give you a hundred bucks too. Okay, go use it in the legislature. Y'all need it. Um, (laughs) No, that's not true. You don't need my hundred bucks. (laughs) So I give Kirk, now I've I've got two. I've got two good things I've done and I've got the one bad. So I'm in the good. I'm in the good, right? Does all this good I did over here, you you think I can come to Mary Beth and say, "Now, Mary Beth, I know you're bleeding and you're missing a tooth and I've been kind of mean to you today, but I I did two good things over there, so we're good, right? That doesn't make any sense at all. Folks, the most of humanity is one day going to stand before God and try to do this exact thing right here. They're going to try to somehow show God through their religious efforts, through their good works, and, and what they tried to be and what they tried to believe, that I came out at least 5149. And so now you owe me heaven. You owe me forgiveness. Folks, that's man's mentality. It's ludicrous, it doesn't make any sense. Only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Now, we've got our judgment. We've got our characters, we need a we need a boat now and we need some animals. And, and if you get to chapter 6, verse uh, 14, you see, make an ark of gopher wood. I don't know why gopher wood. That's what God said, make it out of gopher wood. And, and then God tells us, you going to meet 450 feet by 75 by 45, make the roof like this. And, and then he starts talking about the animals and what kind of animals and not what kind of animals. And then we get into chapter 7 and believe it or not, he starts to repeat some of this over and over again. It's a detail, it, you know, it's more than I'm interested in. I'd have been okay if God would have just said, you know, I told Noah to build a boat. He built it. We put the animals on, his family on, and it started to rain. I'm good. You know, there is a common thing between all the passages you think are boring. Some of you are going, I I, I didn't say the passages were boring. Not so anybody heard, but you've said it. Everybody here, you got passages you've gone to and thought, I ain't never going there again. I, I need help in my marriage. I, I need to pay bills. I've got, I've got something I'm afraid of tomorrow. And knowing that the ark was 450 feet by 75 feet by... Five, it doesn't help me. I don't need that. You know what the one thing all these passages have in common? They're filled with detail. How to build a boat, what animals, what not animals. Then we go, oh gosh, have you been to Leviticus and Exodus? Wow! I mean, we're talking about chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter on how to build the tabernacle. And not just a tabernacle, but then the ark that goes inside the tabernacle. And then it gets down to the utensils. Like, I could care less about the utensils. And there's whole pages that describe this. We, then we start the whole process over later when we get to a temple. Then it's all the exact dimensions and what to build and not to build and what, what things to use and not to use. And, and then oh, all the sacrifices and all this detail. And then everybody's favorite, the genealogies. I mean, how about two or three pages of names that you are never in your life going to be able to pronounce? I took three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew, and most of the time I'm just trying to say it so you think I know how I'm saying it. (laughs) I can't say it either. Obviously, you and I, we have We open up, we read this, and we think, man, the bibles that doesn't have anything for me. That's that's irrelevant. That's boring. Oh my gosh, folks. I don't know how long it took me. But when it hit... Every one of those passages became utterly beautiful to me because what I see in these verses after verses and chapters after chapter that don't necessarily help me in what to do tomorrow, they show me what a detailed God I have. Our God is a God of details. He's not just a big picture God that says, hey, y'all, it's just going to work out in the end. Trust me. No, man, God is right down into the nitty and the gritty and He knows every name and He knows every situation and He knows every detail of getting from point A to point B and from getting from the problem to the solution. Your God is into the minute details of everything going on in your life. Now, I don't know about you, I find that incredibly encouraging. Man, I I need to know that God's doing something a little bit more than just some big picture thing. I want to know that He knows what's going on with the, the specific details. But you know what? While that's an encouragement, it's also a challenge. Because that's true about obedience too. If God is a God of details, that means He appreciates details. When I am detailed in my obedience, God isn't looking for, well, I, I mostly obeyed. I, I, I kind of I I obey. Yeah, sort of. No, he's very detailed. Isn't it interesting that our culture, we have a saying that who's in the details? The devil. You ever heard that saying? The devil's in the details. And apparently he's in my mic, too. Uh, (laughs) The devil is in the details. Folks, nothing could be further of the truth. The devil does not want you to look at the details. He doesn't want you to have clear understanding. He just wants you to quit, quit, go with the flow. You go with how you feel. Don't, don't slow down. Don't try to understand. Don't look at the details. No, it's God that says, let's understand. Let's be clear. Let's look into the details. Okay? Isn't that a lesson I need? Isn't that something we want to know? And you know what teaches us that? All those passages we thought were boring and irrelevant. Irrelevant. Yeah, I don't need to know how to pronounce that name to to, to help my marriage or to to deal with that thing I'm afraid of, but I sure need to know that God knows each one of those names because that might mean He knows mine, right? Yeah, our God's a God of details. Now, the storm does come. comes in chapter 7, verse 10, or or a little bit earlier than that. Chapter 7, verse 10 is one of my favorite verses in this story. I love this. Okay, Noah has built the boat. Now, we don't know how long it took him. It took him a while He's built this boat. The, the animals have gathered. They've gotten on the boat. Noah's family's got on the boat. Actually, some of this gets repeated later in chapter 7. It actually says that God closes the door behind them. So they're all sitting there on the boat. And what does chapter 7, verse 10 say? And it rains seven days later. Now, folks, can you imagine this with me? I don't know if you, if you get on the boat. Now, I don't know what they built on the boat. I, I don't, did they have a, a bench you know, a family bench for everybody to sit on or, or maybe they had a, a, a table to sit around. But you get on the boat, the door's been closed. Now, I mean, we've been working on this for months. We, we've been telling others what's going to happen for months. And so now I'm sitting here and the door's closed. Was that, was that thunder? No, that was the elephant. Okay. Oh, sh- 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 sh. Is that Peter? Is that right? No, okay. Hmm. Y'all want to eat? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's no reason we can't. We're gonna be on here for a while, so we serve dinner and we eat. I guess, I guess, let's go to bed. So we go to bed and we wake up the next morning and we're going man, I must have slept great. I didn't even hear it begin to... It, 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 it didn't begin to rain? Now, folks, here's what I'm getting to. How many hours or how many days are you sitting on that boat before you start to feel really stupid? I mean, you've told... I mean, your neighbors have laughed at you. You're building a boat in the middle of the land. You've told everybody God's coming with this big judgment. Now I'm sitting on this boat with a bunch of animals and it ain't raining. How long before you start to feel stupid? How long do you... Man, I'm going to look like such an idiot when I get off this boat. Or, or he's, got, he's got his sons and their daughter, his daughter-in-laws. I mean, surely, surely by Wednesday, somebody said, Pops has lost his marbles. <laughs> oh my gosh, I cannot believe we followed him in this. I mean, seven days is a long time, isn't it? When, when you've built up to this big thing and nothing is happening. Why? 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 Why put them on the boat and then just have nothing happen for seven days? I don't have a clue. I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us a specific reason. Now, from the rest of Scripture, I can guess at at least one reason that it took seven days. God's testing and proving their faith. You know, when it doesn't immediately start to rain, do they jump off? Do they think, oh man, I was an idiot for following God? What do they do? Now, you know, you think about it. It took faith to build the boat, didn't it? It took faith to get on the boat. You, you would think, man, th- these guys, they've already had victories of faith. They've already proved their faith. Yeah, there's, there's another lesson, folks. God's always going to be proving and testing our faith. We can come through a, a great, momentous, victorious time of faith. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, guess what God's number one goal in your life is? It's to build your faith. Think how often we ask the question, why the delay? Why isn't it happening? Why isn't it changing? Why isn't God answering? Now folks, chances are there's multiple reasons in why that may not have happened yet. But I can promise you one of the reasons is it's about faith. It's always about faith for God. And there's something about waiting that just drives us nuts, doesn't it? And that's where faith is proved. That's where it's tested. Now it does start to rain. Chapter 7, verse 12 says it rains 40 days and it rains 40 nights. Gosh, Folks, can you imagine what that was like? I mean, we thought, you know, we thought about, remember, we remembered Isabel this week as Earl was making its way up here. We started thinking about Isabel. I mean, I remember that day. It's when I first had moved here, and, and, and it was a Thursday. Y'all remember that? And and we knew it was coming. We knew we were going to get hit. And I, I think we closed down the office here about two or three. And we were going home and getting everything ready. And of course, you know, we can track these things pretty good. So, boy, we knew what time it was going to be. And sure enough, at 5.30, here comes the rain. And, and then the winds are coming behind it. And then there goes the electricity. And man, you'd peek outside. And it was like, oh, my God. you know. And we got in bed. And what do we do? We started wondering, is a tree coming through? I mean, it's scary, isn't it? And the next morning, it was over. It's quite a mess, but it was over. Can you imagine 40 days and 40 nights of it not being over? And it, folks, don't, don't imagine a little pitter patter. Man, I love this is good napping weather. No, this is the hurricane stuff. This is the stuff that destroys every living being on the planet. You know, there's a lesson in that. Following and obeying God can be scary. A lot of times when we are trying to follow and obey God, the first time it's uncomfortable. The the, the first time it's not what we thought. Oh, this can't be of God. God. God wouldn't call me into a place that's scary. Folks, I don't know that I can express to you how utterly comfortable God is calling you to a place that will frighten you to death. He is really okay with it. I mean, really, really He's okay with it. Yeah, it can be scary. It can be scary to follow and obey God. But we follow and obey God. So it stops raining. You look at the beginning of chapter 8 and it starts to, to take us through the, this pedantic thing. I mean, we go, they, they don't get off the boat for 150 days. Now, I don't know about you, after 40 days, I'm ready to get off. The, this isn't the love boat. Y'all are aware of this, Right. There's no, you know, first sitting and second sitting and all the foods you want. And Captain Steuben comes by at some point. I mean, folks, this is miserable. We're talking about cramped quarters. We're, we're, we're talking about dampness. And you realize, I mean, I'm trying to imagine it's a boat with a lot of animals. It's a zoo. There's nothing to do. You know what the one thing they're doing every single day is? Man, they are shoveling poop until they're tired of shoveling poop. <laughs> I mean, there's just nothing really that incredibly fun about being on this. When you think it stops raining, are you ready to get off the boat? 150 days. No, no, no. You're not getting off in 150 days. It's 150 days before the water recedes enough. And then they go through this thing of sending birds out and they go out for seven days and then they come back and then we start all over. They were on the boat six months, over six months after it stopped raining. Why? I mean, certainly God could have just gone and the water's gone. I think He can do it, don't you? But He didn't. Oh, folks, watch this. Extremely important lesson. Judgment for sin will come. And it will be swift. And it will be total. But the cleanup is long and it is messy. You understand? God's going to make sure that sin's never worth it. God's going to make sure that, okay, there was the sin and what I got out of the sin. And, and, and here was the, the punishment. Uh, you don't think I came out okay with the sin. No. Man, folks, not only is there a judgment, but coming out of that is long and messy. And you know what? This room, this room has plenty of people who can say, I know exactly what that is. I, I, I lived a season of my life making those decisions. I made that one decision. I am still dealing with hurt, with pain, with messed up lives all around me because of that. Gosh, folks, can you imagine if, if I had nothing but Noah and the Bible, Noah and the flood? I had nothing but that lesson. Can you I'm standing at the front door of a lie. I, I, I'm standing at the front door of responding in anger and, and grumpiness. I'm standing at the front door of gossip and, and negativity and tearing others down. I'm standing at the front door of sexual immorality. If I could stop and if I had nothing but that lesson. And I said, man, it might work when I walk through this door. And I might think I get something out of it when I walk through this door. But on the other side is a judgment that is destructive and there is a mess up that is so long and, and, and a cleanup that is so long and so messy. It, it will never be worth it. Man, I don't know, but y'all, I, I need these lessons. I wish I paid more attention to Noah and the flood. I wish I understood these lessons more times in my life. Now let me wrap up quickly. I'm getting long. Let's look to the screen. I want to I send us away with, with eight lessons. Don't be scared. I'm going through them quick. Uh, Eight lessons. And folks, I don't know that I got all of them. Uh, Just at least eight things we need to be able to leave with as we leave with Noah and the flood. Number one, sin grieves God and ultimately it's going to be met with swift and total judgment. We've already talked about that this morning. We've already elaborated on it. But let me make one other point about this. Do you realize, remember what I said, if we just had nothing but Noah and the flood, the basis of God commanding you to forgive, the basis of God telling you not to get revenge is based on what we learned from Noah and the flood. I don't have to get even with that person. I'll let God handle it. He's already said, no one is getting away with sin. Not a single person, not a single sin is anybody getting away with. Now, if I jump in and try to make it right, and I hold on to my anger and bitterness, all I'm doing at that point is making myself as guilty as the person who's done wrong. The basis by which I can comfortably forgive the basis for which I am not going to get revenge is I know God's going to handle it. God is going to handle it. Number two, God's in control of creation, isn't He? I mean, gosh, we see that in this story land, weather, animals. God's in control of all of it. Number three, maybe the most important message lesson in this story. Look at that. The only rescue from our sin and the impending judgment. Folks, this wasn't one judgment. God judged once with water, the next judgment's with fire. The only escape from that is God's grace. And folks, we need to crawl into the cross of Christ the same way Noah crawled into that ark. You know, we talk a lot. I mean, that's what we do in the church, right? You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to trust for for Christ, for the work He did for you on the cross. We say that every day. What's that mean? What's that look like? It looks exactly like what it looked like for Noah. He got onto the boat. Noah didn't stand outside the boat. If you look at chapter 6, verse 9, while Noah was not perfect and sinless, Noah was a good guy. He said he was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God. Noah didn't say, man, I've got God's stamp of approval. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a lot better than these people around me. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try the first couple days in the rain outside the boat. No, his only escape was inside the boat. Noah, Noah didn't say, you know, i been going to the Y for a couple of weeks now. I think I'm going to swim a couple of days. Man, I I can do that. Good exercise. Folks, when it started to rain, Noah had zero faith or confidence in anything about himself. God said the rescue was in the boat. Noah got in the boat. Folks, there is a judgment coming on every person, on ever, every sin ever committed. And God said the only rescue from it is inside the cross of my son. Do you know why it's safe inside the cross? Because the wrath of God's judgment has already fallen there. If I take my sins and my life and I put it up under the cross, the wrath's already fallen there. We call it the crucifixion. That's the only place we're safe. Not in our good works, not in our religiosity, not in what we want to be or trying to be, or did you see how well I tried to understand you and how well I tried to follow? Place your faith in the cross. Number four. We also learn in this story a question. Can we live without God and pursue life any way we want? The answer is absolutely yes, for a moment. Now, I don't know how long a moment will be for you. A moment might be five minutes. It might be an hour. It might be 17 years. It might be the bulk of your life. But your life is nothing but a moment when you step inside of eternity. All sin will be destroyed. All sin will be dealt with nobody's getting away with anything. Number five, God is into the details. When it comes to obedience, so should we. Don't we see that? God's a detailed God. We need to be detailed in how we follow Him. Everything counts. Everything matters. Look at number six. Cleaning up after sin is a mess and it will always make that sinful choice really not worth it. I think we've covered that pretty good. Look at these last two ones. Got two ones. Did I say two ones? Two ones? Two ones? I don't know. Uh, Number seven and number eight. God's commands can ask the unthinkable. God's commands can be unpleasant. Now notice, I didn't say God's commands are unthinkable and unpleasant or all of God's commands. I said they can be. It can be. I mean, folks, can you imagine Noah's conversation, the original conversation with God? It's going to do what? For how long? You want me to build what? What? And put what on it? Don't you think when not only did you have maybe a hard time getting your arms around that, because I'm sure Noah's never seen a flood, not only does he have to get his arms around that, but as he starts to build this boat in his front yard, can you imagine what people came by? No, what are you doing? Um, building a boat. <laughs> Why? Because uh, God's angry. and he's going to rain. It's going to rain a lot. I mean, you had to know, I mean, how was he not the laughing stock of his community? How was he not a joke? Folks, God's going to ask us to do some things that I can't get my arms around that. Uh, that's scary. If I do that, people are going to laugh at me. People are going to think I'm stupid. Yeah, God, like I said, he's okay with that. God's commands can be unpleasant. Again, I've already addressed that a little bit. Folks, it couldn't have been. While that boat was their rescue, that wasn't a pleasant place for over six months. I mean, the cramped quarters, all that, the shoveling, that wasn't pleasant. We've got to get past this idea that that American Christianity has kind of sold to us that, that coming to Christ is all about how happy you can be and how successful you can be. Folks, actually, I think coming to Christ is the happiest way to live. I think following the commands of God is the most successful way to live. But the Scripture nowhere says following me is one big party. You know, as Americans, we we talk a lot about rights. I demand my rights. I have found one right that Scripture gives me in Philippians chapter 1. I have the right to suffer for Jesus. It has been granted unto you to suffer for His name. So, you know... It's not time to bail the boat just because all of a sudden it's not fun. Because all of a sudden it's hard. Because all of a sudden God's asking things that are just hard for me to get, get my arms around. I, I mean, what? And yet as we think about the unthinkable and the unpleasant, it just keeps saying, look at chapter six, twenty-two and 7, verse 5. And Noah did everything. That's a detail, isn't it? Noah did everything God commanded. Why? Why? Because he believed. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. It was was not all his obedience that made him righteous. It wasn't his works or how good it was that made him righteous. He was righteous because he believed. When God said, I'm God, he believed it. When God said to do this, he said, you know, I believe I ought to do that. When God said, This is what's coming, he acted in light of that, not what his friends and everybody around him were saying and what they thought was funny. He believed. And, folks, when you believe, guess what? You're going to obey. If you've got an obedience problem, you've got a believing problem. You know why we lie, don't you? Because in that moment right there, I don't believe he's God. I don't believe he has said it's wrong. And I don't believe he's going to do anything about it. I'm counting on him not doing anything about it. He's kind of a loving old fuddy-duddy. You know, he knows his kids are good at heart. See all the lessons I'm ignoring? See what I'm ignoring and, and denying about God when I commit a simple sin like telling a lie? If you've got an obedience problem, you've got a believing problem. Folks, God told you and me about knowing the flood this morning. Why? Why why do you think He told us that? What impact should it have on this week? Let's pray. Father, I am sorry... That is one of these people in this room that, that has known this story for decades. That can remember learning it on a flannel board. That while I remember the story, I ignore so many of its lessons. Yeah, there was a big judgment. There was a big, really big lesson though. And God, I, I've made decisions in my life, sometimes daily decisions, that really don't live in light of the lessons that that story gives us and I'm sorry God I am I am depending upon your patience and I am depending upon your forgiveness and I thank you for the cross But God just because there's a cross I don't I don't want to go out there and keep living like that story didn't exist and like I don't have the lessons from it God, help me, help us to live in light of the lessons of knowing the flood. Help us this week. God, would you quicken our mind? It's going to be different for all of us as we move through this week. just, Just touch our heart, open our eyes and our ears and our mind and point out and say, there it is. There's something I learned this week from knowing the flood. Here's how I've got to respond. Because I believe. God, would you show us? I want to live the lessons of Noah. I want to do everything that you've commanded. Because God, I want my obedience to show how much I believe in you and believe about you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.